Let us now prepare our hearts in this moment to be addressed by God himself. Psalm 16, verse 1. This is David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word and write its eternal truth upon our hearts. In the Christian life, as we, as we make our way to heaven, all of us at times find ourselves in difficult situations where we feel our need for God's protection. If you've read your Old Testament, you know, you know that King David was no stranger to such situations. With his life frequently in danger, David often cried out to God in prayer to keep him safe. To keep him safe and to protect him from his enemies. While we don't know the distressing circumstances that gave rise to this particular prayer... In Psalm 16, in our psalm today, David does just that. He appeals to God for protection and for safekeeping. All of us, all of us want to be protected. All of us want to feel safe and secure and have that sense that all is well. Most of us also can at some level relate to feeling anxious or afraid when our well-being and safety is somehow threatened by some trial or some difficulty or perhaps some opposition that we are facing. Some of you here this morning may feel that way even right now. This psalm before us, this psalm before us is a wonderful gift from God to all believers from every generation. As it helps to quiet our souls and see that our protection, our safety, our sense of well-being can only be found in one place. And that place, that place is the Lord. The main point of this psalm is this. You can write this down if you're taking notes. The believer's true source of protection and safety is ultimately God alone. 
The believer's true source of protection and safety is ultimately God alone. Nothing else and no one else will do. Let's see how our passage bears this out. We will go through it verse by verse. In verse 1 at the outset of Psalm 16, we find King David in prayer, appealing to God for protection. He cries out, Preserve me, O God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Many of us at times have prayed similar prayers. When we've experienced trials of various kinds, we've cried out in prayer, Lord, Lord, have mercy. Lord, protect me. Preserve me. Keep me safe. Keep my family safe. You'll notice in his distress, David doesn't look to alternative sources of security. Rather, he looks to the Lord. He says to the Lord, in you, Lord, in you, Lord, do I take refuge. And in verse 2, we discover David's rationale, his reasoning for looking to God alone for safekeeping. He declares, verse 2, please look there with me. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Here King David acknowledges that all good he ever has and ever will experience comes from one source, God himself, Yahweh. Many of you know that in most of our English translations, where you see the word Lord capitalized, it is referring to the personal name of God, to the personal name of God, which is Yahweh. When God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, he revealed his name to be Yahweh. And throughout this psalm, like many others, we see David using the personal name of God. We see him using the name Yahweh. So David acknowledges, Yahweh, Yahweh, my God, everything good. Everything good. It comes from one place. It comes from your hand. James, the Lord's brother, affirms the same thing. James 1.17. You remember what he says? Every good gift and every perfect gift, where is it from? is from above. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So the psalmist says, verse 2, in prayer, Yahweh, I realize every good and every perfect gift comes from you. And because of that, I'm looking to you. I'm looking to you, Yahweh, and I'm looking to you alone. Nothing else for refuge and for safekeeping. Sometimes we emulate David's example. Sometimes in our distress, we immediately cry out to the Lord. We say, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And we look to him for protection and help. But at other times, we don't do that. 
do we? And when we don't do that, I think it's at least in part because we forget this very point. We forget that God and God alone, dear brothers and sisters, is the source of all good. I remind you that whatever good we have ever received in our lives, every good gift and perfect gift is from above. That includes your job. It includes your house. It includes your family. It includes your car. It includes your 401k and any other good thing that you can possibly think of. It all, it all comes from God. <laughs> Amen? No exceptions. But we easily forget this. I know I do. And because we forget, our first instinct when trouble comes isn't always to flee to God like the psalmist. Instead, we flee, we flee to our own resources to try and bring ourselves the good that our hearts long for. A problem comes, and we say to ourselves, let me try to fix this. So we go to Google before we go to God. We ask Siri before we ask God. Now to be clear, it's not wrong to search Google. And it's not wrong to ask Siri either. She's actually pretty smart. Well, at least most of the time. It's not wrong for us to use biblically lawful means. Research on the internet, going to doctors, getting good advice, etc. To try and figure out how we might fix things and how we might solve the problems that we face in our lives. What is wrong, however, brothers and sisters, is for us to sidestep God in the process of trying to solve our problems. What is wrong is the mindset that if I'm going to experience healing or relief or protection or anything good, ultimately, it all depends on me. What's wrong, what's wrong is when prayer, when seeking the Lord for help, and protection is a mere afterthought to other activities we engage in to try and fix our problems. When problems come, trials come, and we fail to earnestly seek the Lord as our top priority, that is an indicator that likely we've lost, we've lost sight of Yahweh God as the source of all goodness. And perhaps some spiritual recalibration may be in order. One way that my dear wife, Phibia, has encouraged me over the years that I'm, I'm so grateful for is when we've encountered various trials uh, on our journey to heaven together, um, she's encouraged me, Chris, you need to be going to the Lord in prayer about this. And I frankly need that kind of encouragement. Because my first impulse when troubles come, when challenges come, I mean, to my shame, I, I confess this, it isn't to, you know, go into my prayer closet and get on my knees and do what David's doing here and just, just begin to pray and pour out my heart. My first impulse is to become anxious and then try to work to fix things. And I'm so glad to be married to someone who's more godly than I am and a better Christian than I am and who encourages me in this way. Chris, go to the Lord when troubles come. And I'm so thankful for that. The reality is, if you just think about this with me for a second, even when good does come to us by means of some effort that we put forth, who gave us the ability to, to put forth that effort in the first place? And when our efforts are fruitful to try and fix various problems, who's the one that made those efforts fruitful in the first place? Well, it's God. God himself who causes our efforts to be fruitful. When any good comes our way, Yahweh is always at the bottom of it. 
He always gets the credit. He always gets the glory. No one else. And the psalmist here in Psalm 16 recognizes this. So in the midst of the danger he faces, he in effect does what all of us should do. He bows his knee and says, God, the source of all good, the source of all good, I plead with you. Preserve my life. Preserve my life. He's looking to the Lord. Verse 3, he continues. Please look there with me. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So the psalmist acknowledged all good comes from God. And now he affirms that one of God's exceedingly good blessings to all of us is the saints in the land. He affirms that a primary expression of the goodness of God is the people of God. On this side of heaven, and we we all know this, believers, Christians, are not perfect. (laughs) Far from it. We are flawed and sinful. And because of that, because of that, local churches like ours, they aren't perfect either. But thankfully, that's, that's not the whole picture. We aren't only sinners. We are also saints. God has saved us. We've been singing about it this morning. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has regenerated our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has redeemed us. He's redeemed you and me by the blood of his Son. He has placed his Holy Spirit inside of us. And not only all of that, he has also graciously adopted us. He's brought us into his family. He's our father. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ. The local church is, among other things, a weekly family gathering. It is a weekly family reunion. That's why the early days of COVID were so difficult. You remember that? Like Sunday, we're doing church online. It was so painful. I remember me and Jeremy do the live stream from the office. And we're just there. It was, it was three of us in the office. And I'm looking into a screen. And it was hard. Those moments were hard. But as, as I would lead worship, strap on my guitar and look in, into the video camera. You know what I'd do? I'd imagine this setup here. I, I can remember where all of you sit because all of you don't change your, your spots on any given Sunday. <laughs> I'd imagine it. And suddenly my heart would be filled with joy like David's here. As for the saints, they're the excellent ones. Grace Community Church, you're the excellent ones in whom is all of my delight. But that was hard, wasn't it? We don't ever want to go back there again. It's good to be together. This is a family reunion, and we're family together. The Apostle Paul expressed his great delight in the Philippians when he wrote to them, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's what he said. He's writing, he's a pastor, he's just writing to this church he loves, that he helped to found. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul loved the Philippians so much that he could say that the love that he had for them was Christ's very own love. Oh, brothers and sisters, may God by his Holy Spirit to have that same kind of warm, intense affection for and delight in all of God's people, all of God's people everywhere, and more specifically for one another. In this context, in the context of the local church that that God has placed us in, I'm very grateful that love and affection and delight is what our church is about. It's very characteristic of you. What a blessing. I'm thankful to Jesus for the love, the bonds of love family love that we share together and just pray that God by his Holy Spirit just continues all the more 
in the days ahead by his spirit to knit our hearts together in the bonds of love and, and fellowship. I would also invite you, um, if, if as I'm talking about this and you know, reading verse 3 here, if you lack, somehow lack that kind of delight in God's people, I would just encourage you and appeal to you to seek to spend more time with them. Bonds of love and joy and delight can only grow in one way. How do they grow? By spending time with one another. There really is no substitute. You know, how do a husband and wife continue to grow in their love and affection with one another? Well, they've got to be together and spend time together. So if, if you find that there's even a little bit of coldness in your heart as verse 3 is, is read and, and you can't, you're struggling to relate to that, I'd really encourage you, strongly encourage you to spend more time than you are now with the people of God. I know many of you are in small groups. If you're not in small groups, that's one of the main reasons we have them is so that we can experience the family life in the church that God intends. And that so verse 3 can apply to all of us. Verse 3 reminds us this is something God intends for all of us to have delight and joy in our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Continuing on, verse 4. Again, please look there with me. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. We all know running after false gods is idolatry. Presenting drink offerings containing the blood of animal sacrifices before false gods is idol worship. So in the Old Testament, why, why did those outside of the covenant community of God, why did the Gentiles participate in idolatry? Why did they worship false gods? Well, they did so for a very, a very good but a very wrong-headed reason. These pagan people truly believed that if they worshipped these false deities, these false deities would bring great blessing to them. That was their conviction. That was their belief. And not only did they believe that those deities would bless them if they sacrificed to them and worshipped them, but they believed that, that those gods, those false gods, would protect them from harm. As well, remembering that helps me to be uh, at least a little more sympathetic when I read my Old Testament about people worshiping these false gods. Because I think to myself, how is what they were doing all that different from what happens today? When people look away from God to other people and things to give them the security, the peace, and the happiness that their hearts so desperately long for. Now just think about this with me for a minute. The unbelieving world around us craves safety and happiness. But all that they've got, all that they've got is their idols. All they have is their money. All they have is their pursuit of power and their pursuit of success. All they have is their serial broken relationships. One after the other. It's very sad. And we as believers are not immune from idolatry either. An idol, biblically, is anyone or anything we replace God with. Anyone or anything that we look to in order to be God for us. An idol is anything that we look to to give us what we, can, what we can only receive from God himself. Idols are often good things. They're often good things. 
that we start treating, as Keller says, like ultimate things. Idols, good things, we often begin to treat as ultimate things. So, for example, a spouse is a good thing. But a spouse is not an ultimate thing. A spouse is not God. No matter how great the person is that you married, they can never provide the sense of safety and well-being and joy that God intends for us to find in one place. In Him. In God alone. And the same is true of your kids, your career, your friends, your bank account, etc. They are all good things. All good things. But they make poor gods. So, if our spouse isn't treating us the way we want, or our kids maybe aren't behaving in the way that we want, or there's not enough money in the checking account, or we don't get the promotion at work that we really want, or our health takes a turn for the worse. If some aspect of our life isn't going our way, and we respond in sinful anger, or incessant worry, or sulking self-pity, or by going off and sinning in some way, If we respond in any of those ways to trouble and difficulty, we can be sure we are dealing with an idol that we are clutching to (laughs) with all of our might. We are dealing with a desire that is so strong that it has, in effect, become Lord of our lives and replaced God in our hearts. And we all do this. It's sad, but we all do this in various ways. And it is good for us to take note that idolatry, David reminds us, doesn't lead anywhere good. It leads to disaster. When people reject God and seek blessing and protection and seek safety apart from, apart from Him, the inevitable consequence is sorrow. It's sorrows. Sorrows multiplied, David says, one on top of the other. And again, that's not, just true, that's not just true of unbelievers. It's true for believers as well. Our God, dear brothers and sisters, is a jealous God. He is a jealous God. He simply will not be replaced. Yahweh, dear brothers and sisters, wants your heart. He wants it. And he doesn't want just like a little portion off in the corner, you know, the religious corner. He wants your whole heart. He wants my whole heart. He will not. God loves us enough Yahweh loves us enough that he will not allow any person or thing or inordinate desire to replace him. And David says here, look, it doesn't work. Idolatry doesn't work. In fact, worse, it's a recipe for sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. It's like he's saying, hey, you want to be sad? You want grief? Well, then chase after, chase after your idols. This is what's so sad about seeing people who don't know Jesus. They are captive to their idols and their cravings and the lusts of the flesh. And even as I read the New City Catechism about hell, I was just talking to Hiro before the service, like, this is reality. This is where people are, are headed. So may God use us to love people enough and share the gospel with them that the shackles of their idolatry might be broken and they might come to Christ. And for us as believers, you know, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, but we still battle with the flesh. 
it still lingers and hangs on pretty tightly until we see the Lord. So may we be the kind of people who eagerly repent of our idolatry as the Lord convicts us of it. We don't want to be on idol hunts, you know, like trying to uncover hidden things in our hearts. You know, if you've got an idol, the Lord is going to make it plain to you. And uh, when we find them, we do well, dear friends, to quickly go to the Lord and repent. When you find yourself anxious, worried, angry, or bitter, I'd encourage you to ask yourself this question. Because this can help lead to repentance. What idol, what inordinate desire or craving is ruling my heart right now? Ask yourself that question. So when, you're, when we sin, when we sin, it's always because there's some idol functioning in our heart. There's something that we want. James speaks about this. James 4. There's things we want that we don't get. Those things that we want are idols of the heart. So when we find ourselves sinning, let's ask God. Ask ourselves, what do I want that I'm not getting? That's the idol. Could be love. Could be respect. It could be another person's approval. It could be a promotional work. Whatever it is. And ask God to forgive you of that idolatry and receive his grace. Psalm 16 is here to sober us. Other gods. Other gods will ultimately fail us. All other gods don't protect you. They can't give you the peace and the security or anything, or anything good at all. They fail you. In contrast, though, Yahweh God, Yahweh God never will fail you. In verse 5, David declares, let's look there together, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. I like the way the Legacy Standard Bible translates it. Verse 5, it says, It says, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. Here David says, Here David says, What I truly need is not false gods, but what I truly need is the one true God. David is saying, what I need most is Yahweh. So he compares Yahweh to a cup and to an inheritance of the land. In the Psalms and in all of Scripture, the cup God offers to his people is a cup filled with blessing. And here we see Yahweh from David's vantage point and perspective. Yahweh, God himself, is that cup of blessing that God gives his people. David says that the one he drinks deeply of is not idols, but it is God himself. He also compares Yahweh to a lot, to an inheritance in, of, of land that you might receive. You know, if your parents passed on, you'd receive an inheritance. And he's comparing Yahweh to a lot of land that you inherit. So what he's saying here is essentially, I don't need He's telling God, I don't need any idol to be happy and have that sense of security and safety and well-being that my heart longs for. Why don't I need idols? He says, well, because I have God. Because I have God, I don't need idols. And because I have God, I have enough. The application of verse 5 is simple. It's that Yahweh, Yahweh brothers and sisters, is your cup of blessing. In life, what is your cup of blessing? It is Jesus. It is God himself. He is your inheritance. So, find your joy in God. Find your sense of stability and peace and security in him and in him alone. And may we all together forsake idolatry. Because the believer has God, he or she is able to say, verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Here David uses the metaphor of property boundary lines for life's circumstances. Just as God sovereignly had allotted to each Israelite the space within the boundary lines of their physical property. 
So he has sovereignly allotted to each person, each person, the exact set of circumstances that they face in this life. In other words, hear me on this, there is no aspect of your experience of life or mine that falls outside the realm of God's providential control. The boundary lines have been drawn. They have been drawn. And they have been drawn by none other than God himself. This can be difficult to lay hold of. This truth can be difficult and hard to lay hold of because many of the painful things we experience in life we have little to no idea as to, as to why. Why God would allow them to happen to us. A few thoughts here that I hope are helpful. First, if God is truly God, and we believe He is, don't we? God is truly God. If we believe God is truly God, there will there will always be certain things we cannot understand. There will always be certain things we cannot understand. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we, we may do all the words of this law. Let me summarize what Moses says here. He says, he says, there are certain things that God says you need to know. And God has told you those things in his word. So there's certain things you need to know. Guess what? God's told them to you. They're in your Bible. Open it up. Certain things you need to know, and there are certain things God says, not me, that are secrets. Certain things that are secrets. That means there are, there are certain things you don't need to know. From God's perspective, he doesn't think you need to know, or I need to know. And perhaps never will know. Maybe we will. Maybe he will reveal it on the other side of eternity. Maybe not. As I think about this, um, many of us at times, I think, waste precious mental energy attempting to peer into the mind of God, as it were, and figure out, try to figure out secret things. I know I've done that at times. Some incessantly ruminate over questions like, could it be because of this or could it be because of that that I am suffering or have suffered in the past in these ways? They've just got to know why. And they won't rest until they do know why. And because they cannot figure out why, their souls, sadly, are never at peace. Brothers and sisters, if God wants us to know why some trial has befallen us, it's understandable we want to know. But if he wants us to know why some trial has befallen us, us we can count on him. We won't need to be prophets to somehow discern the why. We won't need to guess. If God wants us to know and give us insight, even to into some of the why we've experienced what we've experienced, God, by his Holy Spirit, will make it clear to us. But in the absence of that clarity, in the absence of that clarity, and I know in this room, in various ways, there's much lack of clarity. Because there are things in all of our lives, right, that we don't understand, that we don't get. In the absence of clarity. May we rest in the sovereign wisdom and goodness of God when it comes to the perplexing circumstances that we don't understand. 
Hear this. Yahweh himself is the one who has sovereignly drawn the lines. He is the one who has drawn the lines of our lives, not us. So, may we trust him with those lines. May we trust him with those lines and not play God and foolishly try to figure out secret things. Let's let the secret things really in our hearts release those to God. I don't understand why. But let's release them to God. The infinitely wise, loving, and good God of the universe who gave His only Son for us on that tree. That God. knows why. The one who loves you enough that he gave his life for you upon that tree. He knows why. And that ought to be enough. That ought to be enough for us. May God help us to trust him. Another thought on this for your consideration. No matter how bad things get, the boundary lines for the believer are always pleasant. They're always pleasant because we have salvation. We have forgiveness of sins. We have God Himself as our portion and our cup. And all of that is far more than we deserve. What we deserve because of our sins, as we've said, is eternal punishment and separation from God and hell. But that is not what you and I have received. We have received grace. We have received grace upon grace. We have received mercy and forgiveness and adoption into God's family and eternal life. And we have received God Himself, the greatest blessing of all. So no matter how difficult life becomes, the believer can honestly, with full conviction of soul, along with the psalmist, say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Verse 7, David continues on. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. Here the psalmist speaks of how in his bed at night, in those moments before falling asleep, his mind is on the Lord. And the Lord speaks to him. I've experienced this myself at times. Falling in those hours just before you, moments just before you fall asleep. Thoughts go to the Lord and the Lord speaks tender words of love and encouragement. I'm motivated after reading this psalm to think more often about the Lord upon my bed as I fall asleep. How wonderful that we as believers can enjoy that kind of intimate, close fellowship with the Lord. It's wonderful. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Here the psalmist speaks of the emotional security and stability he has because he has intentionally preoccupied himself with the Lord. He has intentionally set the Lord, he has set Yahweh always before him. The Lord is David's constant meditation. Yahweh is who and what David focuses his thoughts on when he even has one spare minute. Not only that, David confesses that the Lord is at his right hand. In other words, the Lord is always, every second, of every moment, of every day, with Him. Dear brothers and sisters, what blessings we so often forfeit because we fail to intentionally, proactively, purposely focus our minds and our attention on God, on His Word, and on His promises, and on His presence as well. How good to know that even when we don't feel His nearness and His presence, He is near. He is at our right hand at all times. Even when we don't see Him or feel Him, He is there 
at our right hand, your right hand, my right hand, sustaining us, keeping us, watching over us, protecting us, keeping us safe. That doesn't mean, of course, that sorrows won't befall us. But what it does mean is that his protective care, his protective care encompasses, envelops, encloses every tear-laden, sorrow-producing situation, causing those situations to, in the long run, do us great spiritual and eternal good. There is profound mystery in this, but it is the clear teaching of Scripture and the solid ground of our hope as believers in Jesus Christ. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, some things, is that what it says? No, all things, all things, that's comprehensive. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. As someone has said in the Greek, the word translated all means all. <laughs> all things work together for good. What a comfort to know. For the believer, for the believer, absolutely no evil can touch us that God won't miraculously turn to do us eternal good. What a wonderful truth. We can bank our hope and faith on. In light of God's protective care, the psalmist exclaims, verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. David is declaring that no matter what evil may threaten his life, he can still be happy, and his soul can still be at peace. It is... As if David has happiness and a peace that is out of reach of circumstances. This indeed, in large part, I believe, is what sanctification is about. Of what becoming like, more like Christ is all about. It's about God providentially allowing trials and difficulties into our lives that are divinely crafted, divinely crafted to expose our idols and to bring us to the place where God himself is more central to our identity than anything or anyone else. Yahweh so works in our lives that we can truly say, as the psalmist says elsewhere, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God. God is the strength of my heart. God, Yahweh, Christ is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. May God, by His Holy Spirit, so work in your heart and mine to bring us to that place. To bring us to that place where Christ is truly the greatest desire of our hearts. And our hearts are at peace if we but have Him. I do want to ask the band to join me on stage as we Finish up the chapter and bring this to the close. Verse 10, David continues. For you will not abandon my, my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This really, this really is um, the exclamation point of the passage. So it's fitting that it comes at the end. Here David expresses his confidence in God's watchful protection over his life. Yet we know, we know this verse was not perfectly fulfilled in David's life. As David did eventually die. And his body did eventually decay. 
and eventually saw corruption. The Apostle Peter, referring to this psalm, makes this very point in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And then he explains who Psalm 1610 was ultimately referring to. He says, Being therefore a prophet, he, that is David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Dear brothers and sisters, reading verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 16 through the lens of the New Testament, each of us who is a believer can say with full assurance of faith in our hearts, that my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. How can we say that? How can we say that? Well, because the Holy One of all, the Holy One of all has not seen corruption. Christ was buried, but His body did not see corruption. Our Lord and Savior Jesus has risen from the dead, thereby conquering our greatest enemy, which is death. Just as Christ has been raised, we too one day will rise from the dead to newness of life in the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, no matter what evils, no matter what evils may befall us in this life, no matter what sicknesses may come our way, no matter, no matter what sorrows may fill our hearts, we have reason to rejoice. And we have reason to be at peace because the believer's true source of protection and safety is not other circumstances and it is not other people. Rather, the believer's true source of protection and safety is ultimately God and it is God alone. Christ Jesus Himself, the Son of God, has protected us from the wrath of God we deserved and secured for us eternal life with Him in His presence, where there is fullness of joy. So we can truly say with David, you make known to me the path of life. He has made known to us the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let us stand and worship the Lord and express our trust and delight in Him together.